Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little one and dashes them against the rock. The word of the Lord. Well, we are in a series in which we're looking at various psalms and we're seeing what they show us about how to um, process our emotions through prayer. This morning, we're looking at one of the most painful emotions and also one that of the most debilitating and devastating if we don't um, deal with it. That emotion is grief. Now, why is this so important? Luc Ferry is a French philosopher who wrote a book some years ago called A Brief History of Thought. He says something really interesting at the beginning of the book. He says that a lot of people think that philosophy is all about critical thinking and free inquiry. And he basically says, look, I'm all for those things. But the real purpose of philosophy is way more practical than that. It's about dealing with the elephant in the room of human existence, which is death. And not just your own death or the death of a loved one. He says, all of life is a series of losses. Remember that poem by Edgar Allan Poe called The Raven? It's all about a young man who's grieving the loss of his beloved Lenore. But a raven comes and perches nearby and, and it just repeats one word over and over again. Nevermore. Nevermore. Now, here's what Luke Ferry says about that. He says, Poe is suggesting that death means everything that is unrepeatable. Death is, in the midst of life, that which will not return. Even if it does not always mean the disappearance of a loved one, everything that comes under the heading of nevermore belongs in death's ledger. He's saying, all of life is a series of losses, nevermore. So that might mean things that you had, but you lost them, like a loved one, or a friendship, or a marriage, or your health, or uh, maybe even just the ability to gather in a room with other people. Nevermore. Or it might be things that, that you long for, but never ever received, like uh, the love and approval of a parent, or someone to share your life with. Or maybe a hundred other things that you were so looking forward to, but the pandemic totally crushed it. Nevermore. Life is a series of losses. But what happens if we fail to grieve our losses? Terry Wardle is an author, a Christian author, who writes a lot about this. He says this, that life is a series of ungrieved losses. But when we fail to grieve losses, that loss internalizes. And then what do we do? We find some way to kill the pain. You can kill it through performance. 
You can kill it through addiction, but people want to kill the pain of loss. If we don't pay attention to our grief and our loss and what it's showing us, we're going to find some other way to kill the pain, but that will lead us further and further away from the path of true healing. This psalm that we just read is one of the most raw expressions of grief that you will find anywhere in the Bible. But it's also one of the most healing if we listen to what it's telling us. There's way more in this psalm than we can possibly talk about um, in the time that we have this morning. But let me just pull out two big things that this psalm shows us and helps us about what to do with our grief and how to process it. Processing our grief means naming our grief and it means narrating our grief. Naming and narrating our grief, okay? So first, it means naming our grief. Now, let's get a little backstory here. Um, one of the most devastating events that happened in the nation of Israel was when the nation of Babylon came, destroyed Jerusalem, burned their temple to the ground, and then carried them all away into captivity in Babylon. That's where we are at the beginning of this psalm. It says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now, right off the bat, there are a few things to notice here that are important for us. And the first is this. Notice that they're taking time and space in their life to grieve their loss. It says, we sat down and wept. They're being intentional about creating space in their life to mourn their losses. By the way, Jewish people still do this today. It's called sitting shiva. They intentionally create space in their life to grieve. But secondly, notice that they're intentional about naming what they lost. It says, we remembered Zion. Zion is a poetic name for Jerusalem. Basically, they're saying, we lost our home. We lost our city. We lost our homeland. We lost our place of worship. But that's not all they lost. I'm sure we all kind of at least shuddered internally when we heard the last verse of this psalm read, that one about dashing the little ones against the rocks. And we're going to talk more about that a little later. But for right now, I just want us to notice one big thing. When they say that, the, the verse right before that talks about this. It says, blessed shall he be who repays you, O Babylon, for what you have done to us. That means that they had their little ones ripped from their arms and dashed against the rocks before their very eyes. Now, friends, here's why all of this is so important for us. As you work your way through this psalm, you, you notice that it begins, they're sitting and weeping. How polite. But by the end of this psalm, there's nothing polite about this. They're crying out for blood. You know, many of you are aware that over the past several decades, psychologists have noticed that there's a pattern in our grieving process. It's called the five stages of grief. And those five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally, acceptance. By the way, if you want to see someone move through all five stages of grief in about 60 seconds, watch Sally Field's graveside scene in the movie Steel Magnolias. It's an old film, but Sally Field plays a mother who's just lost her daughter, and they're walking away from the grave, and one of her friends, I think it's Dolly Parton, says, hey, are you okay? And she just starts yelling, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Total denial. <laughs> and then she just moves through all the stages of grief, including anger. She says, I just want to hit something. 
I want to hit something hard. And at that point, Olympia Dukakis grabs Shirley MacLaine and pushes her forward and says, here, hit this. But if we were to take this psalm and map it somewhere in these five stages, where would we put it? It's way closer to anger than acceptance. Way closer to anger. They want to hit something. Friends, one of the reasons we are so uncomfortable with this psalm is because it's so unresolved. It's not polite. It's angry. And that means that one of the most important things we need to do is pay attention to us. Pay attention to the things that our grief and our tears and even our anger are showing us. That, that all of that is, is, is a way that we need to respond to the to evil and in the injustice and the suffering and the tragedy and loss of this world. We need to pay attention to that stuff. Because God responds to it like that. And we're not good at doing that. Sung Chan Ra is a brilliant theologian who wrote a book a few years ago called Prophetic Lament. It's, that book is all about the book of Lamentations, which is all about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is what our psalm this morning is about. In the beginning of that book, Sung Chan Ra, um, he makes the point that the American church has an inveterate tendency to be so captive to these narratives of triumph and success that we've lost our ability to lament. He, he, one of the ways he points that out is by going to a, a Christian worship website. And he says, you know, if you look at the top 100 songs that are popular today in Christian worship, only five of them qualify as a lament. He, he goes on to say that, that, that true lament means acknowledging and acknowledging not just as individuals, but as, as, as a community. It means acknowledging that there are dead bodies in the street. That's what's going on in this psalm. There are dead bodies in the street. Now, he wrote this book pretty shortly after Ferguson. And he makes the point that when you look at the church's response, and he's talking primarily about the white church. And by the way, he identifies as an evangelical. But he says, when you look at the church's response to Ferguson, to the dead body of Mike Brown lying in the street, there's no lament. There's no tears. There's no grief. There's no anger. That is a woefully insufficient response. By the way, that's one of the many reasons I'm so grateful for Mary Higgins, our worship leader. If you come to this church regularly, you'll notice that Mary not only has us sing songs of joy and celebration, but also songs of lament. We sang one this morning, Psalm 126. And the reason we do that is because it's when we sing songs like this together as a community, it shapes us, not just as individuals, but as a community. It shapes our response to tragedy and death. Now, here's the question. What should that response be? Well, this psalm begins by showing us that, that we need to name our losses for what they are. We need to name tragedy and death for what it really is. It's wrong. It's evil. And that's especially um, pointed when you realize that there are different worldviews that respond to death in different ways. So, for instance, the Western secular response to death says that death is natural. As Mufasa said to Simba, it's all part of the circle of life. There's nothing to be upset about here. Or Eastern views of reality, and that would include things like Hinduism, Buddhism, and New Age spirituality, say that death is really more like a wave just falling back into the ocean. It says that, that everything is God, and therefore everything that happens in this world is also part of God. 
And that means that our experience of evil and tragedy and death, it, it feels tragic to us, but it's an illusion. It's not real, and we need to be freed from that illusion. Now, those are serious views of reality with a long pedigree. And if you're exploring faith, then you need to evaluate those views for yourself. But I want us to at least be clear about what the options are and about what the differences between those views are. There are different responses to death. The Western view says death is natural. The Eastern view says death is an illusion. But the Bible says death is an intruder. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Death is an intruder. It's wrong. And that therefore, our feelings of grief and tears, and yes, even our anger, are an appropriate response to death and tragedy in this world because that's God's response. And by the way, one of the clearest pictures you could possibly get of that is Jesus himself in John chapter 11. One of his best friends, a guy named Lazarus, has just died. And Jesus shows up and everybody's weeping, everybody's grieving. So what does Jesus do? Here's what's so amazing about this passage. Uh, Jesus comes and he knows that he's coming to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that in about 10 minutes, uh, all of this weeping and mourning is going to be transformed into um, joy and celebration. But what does Jesus do? Well, here's what he does not do. Jesus does not mock them for their grief. He does not say, keep a stiff upper lip. He doesn't tell them how silly they're being. Jesus enters right into their grief. He weeps and sobs uncontrollably. And not only that, Jesus walks up to the tomb. And remember, he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But as he's walking up to the tomb, most translations say something like he was deeply moved or greatly disturbed. But the actual word means something closer to bellowing with anger. Or quaking with rage. Have you ever been so angry that you just shook? That's Jesus here at the tomb. He's furious at death. And the reason is because God created this world to be a place of beauty and wholeness and perfection. But because of human evil, because the first human said, God, we don't want to live your way. We want to live our way. Because of that, everything's falling apart. And this world is now under the curse of death. And if you think about it, you realize that means that this world really is, really, it's more like a fairy tale than anything else. And by fairy tale, I do not mean stories with little pixies flying around. If you read about fairy tales from people who actually know something about them, they'll all tell you the same thing. Fairy tales are about a world, a parallel world that exists alongside this world. And yet the boundary between these two worlds is fuzzier than we realize. You could find yourself in that world at any moment. In fact, you might be in it right now. And in a fairy tale, um, in that world, um, evil is real. And therefore the danger is real. In a fairy tale world, your destiny hinges on your ability to, uh, on how you respond to the people and the characters that you meet in that world, many of whom are not what they appear. That frog might be a prince. That old beggar woman might be a powerful enchantress. That beautiful queen might be an evil witch. And in a fairy tale, light and darkness are real. Truth and deception are real. Good and evil are real. And, and, and your true nature gets revealed. Or we, if we were to put this in modern terms, your authentic identity gets revealed 
by your ability to respond and discern truth from deception, good from evil, darkness from light. Now, you tell me which of these views it, um, it, it better describes this world and our actual experience in it. The Western view says that this world is nothing more than the result of a mindless, unguided natural process. That this is a world of natural selection and survival of the fittest. And yet, we've constructed a whole society based on the idea that it's wrong for the strong to eat the weak. Where did we get that idea? Or the Eastern view of reality says that this world and our experience of evil is nothing but an illusion. And yet, we have committed ourselves to the idea that we must make this world a better place. Where did that idea come from? The Bible says that this world and our experience in it is really more like a fairy tale than anything else. Once upon a time, God created this world to be a place of goodness, beauty, perfection, and wholeness. But then evil invaded and corrupted everything it touched. And now everything's falling apart. Now this world is under a curse of death. And our longing for, for, for evil and danger and death and darkness and tragedy to be overcome is a reflection of the true story that we actually live in, whether we acknowledge that story or not. Friends, this psalm is like a bucket of ice water, shocking us awake to the reality of the world we really live in, shocking us awake to the reality of what our tears and our grief and our lament, and yes, even our rage is showing us about this world. That means that, that part of processing our grief begins by naming our grief. It means by, that we begin by, by getting honest with God about what we've lost, about how it hurts, about how we feel about that, and, and being honest with God even about the anger and the rage we feel about that. God is okay with those emotions. In fact, God shares a lot of those emotions, and that leads to our last point. We've seen that processing our grief means naming our grief, but lastly, it means narrating our grief. Now, here's what this means. If you look at verse 7, uh, it says, Remember, O Lord, this is, the Jews are talking, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. That's another nation that watched on in glee while Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare. Now, here's the thing. That word, remember, and all of the scholars and commentators point this out, that's courtroom language. It's a word that means not, not so much to recall as to take action. When it says, remember, O Lord, it's a way of saying, it's, it's really more like a witness or a plaintiff in a court of law saying, God, put an end to evil by doing to evil as evil deserves. You know what that is? That, that's a way of taking your prayer and placing it within the context of the larger story of the Bible. It's a way of saying, remember your story, God. The story of how you created this world to be a place of beauty and wholeness, but evil invaded, corrupted everything, and now the world is under a curse of death. But one day, God, the true king of creation, will return. He'll put an end to evil and make all things new. That means that this prayer is not only an expression of grief, it's an act of hope. It's not just naming our grief, it's narrating our grief within the larger story of the Bible. It's, it's like taking a time shuttle to the future and then looking back on the grief and the loss that you're experiencing right now from that perspective. 
Friends, you realize this transforms the way you pray and the way we process our grief. We're not just naming our grief, we're, we're narrating our grief. And look, you know, I said I was going to talk about it. I understand that, that we gasp at the last verse of this psalm that talks about dashing the little ones against the rock. And, and we gasp rightly. It is horrifying. But I want us to notice something. It, the psalm is not saying, God, I'm going to take those little ones and dash them against the rock. God, justice needs to be done in this world. Let me take a crack at it. It doesn't say that. It says, God, here's how I feel. Here's what I would do. But you're the God. You're the master of the story. You're the master of justice. You do justice in this case, Lord. I'm handing it over to you. You're the master of the story. This psalm is not just an expression of grief. It's an act of hope that God will put an end to evil by doing to evil as evil deserves. God takes tragedies and turns them into a song. Because here's, to me at least, the most amazing part about this psalm. Right in the middle, in verses 3 and 4, this, there's this heartbreaking part where the Babylonian captors are taunting uh, their Jewish captives, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And you notice in verse 4, they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're saying, our lives have been shattered. How can we sing songs when our lives have been de devastated? There's no beauty. There's no joy. And yet, you notice that <clears throat> what's going on here? They're saying, how can we sing songs? But this psalm is itself a song. It, that's what a psalm is. It's a song. So what happens when you take your grief and you narrate it to God? You say, God, I want justice in this world, but I'm leaving it in your hands. You do justice. You're the master of this story. What happens when we do that? God takes our tragedy and he turns it into a song. A very different song, but a song nonetheless. Friends, that's the gospel. The gospel is the story of what God is doing in this world through Jesus. The gospel is the story of what God is doing in this world through Jesus. That God is bringing love and healing and renewal and his power into this world. But he's not doing it through triumph, through success, through victory. God is bringing his love, power, and renewal into this world through tragedy and loss and grief and heartbreak. That's the gospel. Friends, I'm, here's what all of this means. The gospel means that it, it doesn't change what happened in the past. It doesn't deny what happened. It doesn't ignore your tragedy. It doesn't deny your loss. It doesn't um, pretend that your pain and your heartbreak aren't real. The gospel doesn't change what happened in the past. It changes what it means. That, that your loss is not the end of the story. That God is taking your tragedy and turning it into a song. That God's love and power and renewal are coming into this world, but he's bringing it into the world through tragedy, through loss, through heartbreak. It doesn't change what happened in the past. It changes what it means. One of the best pictures I've ever seen of this is uh, um, in the British TV show Doctor Who. It's about a time traveler. And there's an episode in which Doctor Who travels back into the past and meets Vincent Van Gogh. Now, Van Gogh was one of the greatest painters who ever lived, but Van Gogh was also a very tortured person. He never sold any of his paintings while he was alive. He died penniless. He suffered from depression. Everybody around him thought he was crazy. 
As far as he could see, Van Gogh, the, his story began and end with the reality that his life was full of pain, torment, tragedy, and loss. He ended up taking his own life. And yet in the TV show, Doctor Who takes Vincent van Gogh um, into the present time and he brings him to a museum in Paris. And they walk into this room in the museum and, and van Gogh can't believe what he sees. A whole room full of his paintings with people from all over the world who've come to see them. And Doctor Who takes Vincent and he says, now you stand right here. And then he goes and he gets the museum director and he brings him back to within earshot of Vincent and he asks him this question, tell me, how would you rate Van Gogh in the history of art? Vincent's listening in. And the, the museum director says, well, to me, Van Gogh was the finest painter of all time. He took the pain of his tormented life and, and transformed it into ecstatic joy. Pain is easy to portray, but to take your pain and to transform it into the joy and the ecstasy and the magnificence of our world, well, nobody's ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, the museum director says, that strange wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the greatest artist who ever lived, but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. And Vincent is just standing there listening to this with tears in his eyes. Because he had no idea that what he did with his pain in his lifetime would end up impacting the world like that. Bringing that much beauty and joy into the world. And here's the really crazy thing, which I think is brilliant on the part of the writers of the TV show. That Vincent Van Gogh ends up in this episode going back to his own time and he still takes his own life. His revelation in the museum doesn't change what happened in the past. It changes what it means that his pain is not the end of the story, but that what he did with his pain could bring an ever even greater beauty and joy into the world. It's like a fairy tale. Who is this wild, strange man who died a tragic death? None other than the world's greatest artist who through his pain brought greater, greater joy and beauty into the world. Friends, Van Gogh and this psalm, Psalm 137, are a picture of that reality. But Jesus Christ is the reality. Because who is Jesus? What does the world look at when it sees Jesus? A homeless, marginalized Jewish man roaming the fields of Galilee. Everybody thought he was crazy. People thought that he was demon-possessed. No one lived a life of greater pain, torment, tragedy, and loss than Jesus. And yet no one lived a life of greater beauty and joy. Because who is Jesus really? The one and only Son of God. Jesus is God's little one. So that when we ask God, God, put an end to evil. By doing to evil as evil deserves. You know what the challenge with that question is? How is God supposed to put an end to evil without putting an end to us? The answer is Jesus is God's little one. Jesus is the ultimate little one who was ripped from his father's arms and dashed to pieces on the rocks of the cross so that God could put an end to evil by doing to Jesus as evil deserved so that God could do to us as Jesus deserves. Because Jesus is the true singer of this psalm. And on the cross, Jesus did to death as death deserves by letting death do its worst to him. On the cross, Jesus takes death and turns it into life. 
He takes tragedy and turns it into beauty and joy. He takes tombs and turns them into gardens. Jesus, that's the true story in which we live. And that means that we can process our grief first by naming our grief. By taking our grief to God in prayer and being honest with God about that. About what we lost. About how it hurts. About how we feel about that. But it also means that we can narrate our grief. By plunging our tragedy into the story of the gospel, into the story of Jesus Christ, the ultimate little one who was dashed to pieces on the cross so that he could take our tragedies and turn them into a song of hope. Friend, are you inviting Jesus into your tragedies? Are you plunging your grief into the story of the gospel? The more you invite Jesus into your tragedies, the more he transforms your life and your tragedies. It doesn't change what happened in the past. It changes what it means that your loss, your grief, your tragedy is not the end of the story. That God loves you still. This God who takes tragedies and turns them into songs. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. And, and part of the way we do that is by lamenting, by sharing your feelings, your emotions, Lord, about the evil and the injustice and the suffering and the, and the violence and the death of this world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. God, you grieve it, you lament it, you're angry about it. And so, Father, we come to you with our emotions of grief and loss and tragedy. And we thank you that, that, that the way we feel about this is the way you feel about it, too. And that our grief and our loss is not the end of the story. That you have done something about it, Lord, through Jesus. And we pray this morning that you would help us to name our grief, to be honest with you about our loss, but also to narrate our grief. Lord, to plunge our grief into the story of the gospel. The story of your son Jesus, the ultimate little one who was dashed to pieces so that you could take our tragedies and turn them into a song and bring your love and your joy and your renewal into this world even through those things, Father. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.